Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. That was Tom Morello getting us started as always. Tom's a virtuoso on the guitar, a brilliant songwriter, and most importantly, a comrade who shows up whenever the struggles are in the street, fighting for justice, peace, balance, sanity. Thank you for all you do, Tom. We also begin traditionally with a poem, and we turn to another artist. And today, the artist is Sonia Sanchez, and the poem is Graduation Notes. So much of growing up is an unbearable waiting, a constant longing for another time, another season. I remember walking like you today down the path, in love with the day, flesh awkward. I sang at the edge of adolescence, and the scent of adulthood rushed me, and I thought I would suffocate. But I didn't. I'm here. So are you, finally. Tired of tiny noises, your eyes hum a large vibration. I think all journeys are the same, my breath delighting in the single dawn, yours, walking at the edge, unafraid, anxious for the unseen dawns, are mixing today like the underground rhythms seeping from your pores. At this moment, your skin's living your 18 years suspend all noises. Your days, still half-opened, crackle like the fires to come. Outside, the earth, wind, night, unfold for you, listen to the sounds. They have sung me seasons that never abandoned me. A dance of summer rain, a ceremony of thunder, waking up the earth, the human monuments. Facing each other, I smile at your faces, know you as a young hero soon to be decorated with years. Hope no wars dwarf you. Know your dreams, wild and sweet, will sail from your waist to surround the non-lovers, dreamers, and you will rise up like newborn armies, refashioning lives louder than the sea you come from. That's Sonia Sanchez, Graduation Notes. Another great poet, Bertolt Brecht, once asked the question, in the dark times, will there be singing? His answer, yes, there will be singing, singing about the dark times. So what I'd like you to do now is pause the podcast for a minute and write furiously about singing in dark times. We'll be right here when you get back. If you want to share your response to the writing prompt, email the voice memo to underthetree at gmail.com. We might play it in a future episode, so make sure you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. You can also follow us at Under the Tree Podcast on Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel for clips and interviews. Okay, back to the show. Let's move on to our segment, Reports from the Front Row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook, where we look at education with our dynamic reporter and regular guest, Light Eilee. She's a writer and an artist, a phenomenal observer of human actions, and she's 12 years old and a rising seventh grader. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Lighty. Good to be here, Phil. It's always good to have you. So, Lighty, um, 
we did a free ride again today and you participated. And um, part of the question that I'm interested in from the perspective of you and a 12 year old is um, where do you find joy? Where do you find um, happiness in these dark times? Of course, this is a time when a lot of the things that have brought me joy in the past have been taken away from me. And it, su- it really sucks to know that some of these things I wasn't really appreciating or aware of. I'm not saying I didn't like know I was lucky, like I knew that I had a great life, but I never stopped and thought to myself, hey, you're in your school's fancy cafeteria with your closest friends and you should enjoy it because I never really considered that those simple pleasures could be revoked. And I thought I was entitled to them, which I wish I hadn't because now I learned that I wasn't. Mm. But I have found some things that bring me joy in quarantine, like texting my friends. I planted a garden on my balcony with my mom recently. Um, I like to cook and read and watch movies with my family. I'm very lucky that I have those things in these times and I'm and now I'm much more aware that I have them because some of the things I don't have anymore. Uh-huh. I think that's a very profound insight. You also made a little village, didn't you? A little a little world, a little house, no? Oh, yeah. Um my mom and I started a quarantine project called the Mouse House. It's a big dollhouse we made out of cardboard boxes and FEMA. We've been working on it for maybe three months now. It has basically everything a house could need. And we made little, I made little clay mice to live there. Uh So we call it the mouse house. We made them, we kind of used it as a diary in a way. Like we made pretzels one day and then we made pretzels, like clay pretzels for the mice. Wow. So we use it as things to mark what we did in quarantine. So we make them for the mice when we do them. Wow. I hope you're keeping, I hope you take photographs of it because it must be getting very dense and complicated in the mouse house. It is. Just like it's getting dense and complicated in your own house. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe today you we would talk a little bit about your family. You reference your mom, your dad, your sister. Um, how would you describe your parents? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to say. I mean, they're like great. They're really good cooks. They um, are really nice. They're not strict. I've met. I know some of my friends' parents are a lot more strict than my parents, and are strict about different things. You know, my parents. They have this. They have one thing that they're very strict about, which is screen time. Mm. And here they you are. Set here you are on screen time, or does this? Not- yeah, well, this is not exactly that, but what I mean is like social media and video mm. games, which are very illicit in these times. Mm. I they always appeal to me in the in these times because I can't go out or see my friends or anything, and the whole world is connected now on devices. Right. I do my school on a device. I text my friends on a device. I see my classmates on social media on a device. They're pretty essential now. And some of my friends don't have phones, which is a big problem actually. Um, But my parents set app limits on my phone. You can do that in settings um, Mm. where if I've been spending too much time, the app shuts down and I can't use it anymore. And and, and that feels, you're rolling your eyes. That feels like an injustice. 
I wouldn't say it's an injustice, but it's definitely very ir- irritating when it happens. Okay. All right. And how would you describe your sister? My sister is, um, she's a, she's about to be a sophomore. She's an amazing artist and um, she's the one who made the office painting in my room for me. And she, she's kind of shy. She, you know, I, uh, is she shyer than you? Yeah. I mean, she's not exactly shy. We're both kind of like sarcastic and a little bit standoffish, I guess, but not, I wouldn't say shy. Mm. Exactly. And do you, get along um, with her, do you get along with her all the time? Yes. And we have never had a physical fight. If we did that, we would be in a lot of trouble a lot of the time. We do bicker over petty things and sometimes it gets very heated, but we, I've never like pushed her or anything because I'd be in a lot of trouble for that. And you wouldn't do like it anyway? I've, I watched The Simpsons when I was little and obviously they like hit each other in the face all the time. Wow. And, I, and one time when I was really little, like four or five, I turned to my mom and I was like, why aren't uh, why aren't Homer and Marge yelling at them? Because uh, they were like absolutely beating each other up. And I was like, how is that good parenting to like let your kids do that? I don't know. That's like, obviously we fight, but not like that. I you know, guess. you talked about your parents as not too strict and fair and good in many ways, but do you talk a lot about what good parenting is? Do you talk about that with your sister or with your parents? You think about it, yeah, analyze we, it? Yeah, we talk about, we know some people and we talk about their parenting. Mm-hmm. And like, not like gossipy or anything, but like we discuss it. To, um, get a, to get a better sense of what's best practice, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, listen, we're going to end it here for today and we'll get back together in a week or so. But it's great to hear your voice. It's great to see you, as always. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great week. Thank you. I'll see you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. So, Malik. How you doing? I'm all right, Bill. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. You um, too. So we're talking about education, and I wanted to um, maybe begin by just, I know you have a couple of kids. Maybe you tell us how old they are and, and how they're doing. Two kids, yes. Two kids, Yari, she's three, uh, and Ori, he's one and a half. Wow. Yep. Does the three-year-old go to daycare or go to any group care? So she's, the pandemic times have, you know, caused us to... Uh, become a little bit more creative about it but no she's doing a a homeschool situation with another young girl who lives around the corner from her mother Um, so two children uh, one teacher got it Uh, yeah learning at home yeah well you know you're a you're a young father and you know I I, sometimes my mind goes off and thinks about the difficulties of the pandemic and I think three is such a time for socialization learning from other kids yeah, and definitely. it's rough to it's rough to be on your own but we'll get through this and uh come out the other side but looking forward i mean thinking about 
your three-year-old. Think about your one-and-a-half-year-old. What kind of things do you think about when you think about um, the schools you hope they attend? What do you want the schools to have? I mean, you had all your experience as a school you know, as a student in school? Yeah, so I'm actually, I don't have much experience in schools, traditional schools. I was homeschooled uh, most of my life, so. Well, let me ask you this. I got I got another way of, of thinking about it, which is um, your oldest kid is three. Your younger kid is a year and a half. They already know a heck of a lot. They already know a lot. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, I often think, they're geniuses. They're geniuses. Of course they are. And don't they blow your mind almost every day with new words, new ideas, mm-hmm. new things? And notice how they just want to explore the world. They don't, you know, I always think kids under five are the ones who tell us the meaning of life. The meaning of life is live. And yeah. that's all they want to do. That's Absolutely. all they want to do is live. Um, but um, think about your older daughter. Think about her in a, in a, in a sandbox. Watch her for a minute. She's measuring, she's testing, she's feeling, she's touching, she's talking, she's, all these things are happening. She's not an empty vessel. She's mm-hmm. not a blank slate, right? right? No, she's somebody who um, is exploring the world and learning the world by exploring it. Right, so she's taking what, in data and she's analyzing it every every she, millisecond. That's a good way to put it. She's a little scientist right. and, and she's, uh, She's making hypotheses and she's testing hypotheses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the other thing I love about kids th- that age is they're using all five senses all the time. It's not just talk and see, it's mm-hmm. it's smell and taste. I mean, so they're playing in the sandbox, suddenly they put stuff in their mouth. You, as a parent, you gotta say, get that out of your mouth, right. you know. But but there's this sense that they're they're unruly sparks of meaning making energy mm-hmm. on a voyage. And, and what kills me about school too often is once they get to school, that gets put to the side. Right. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an assumption that they're an empty slate, right. that we're going to pour information into them. But that's not how they learned up until now, right? Right. I mean, they're learning all the time. So yeah. I like the idea of a learning space that changes every day. I like, I like the idea of exploration. Um, Living in a city, particularly, there are tons of ways to learn and places to learn. Um, and so I like the idea of uh, adventure school. Um, you know, if, if my kid could decide, hey, you know, where I'm online looking up what I want to do today um, and deciding what they want to do, going there and then, you know, but you know, of course there being some structure to it, right? Like I would give some kind of assignment uh, some kind of way to, to uh, you know, I want to, I want to learn, I want to know about their day and and see how they are learning and what they learned from their day. Right. I mean, I think I think that's a great way to think about it. Discovery, um, project based uh, exploration, because what you're saying is underneath that, what you want your kids to come out of schooling with is qualities like curiosity. Um, uh, you know, kind of amazement, astonishment at the world. You don't want them to come out with information, but no curiosity. Right. And I and I want them to contextualize that to be able to contextualize that with what they have learned about themselves. And I realized probably when I got to college that I didn't know much about myself through 
the the schooling that I had received in, in you know in the previous years. And I think that when you have the freedom to determine what you want to do with your time, uh, you become much more discerning about what is uh, a good way to spend your time and what's not. Like, am I actually interested in what I'm doing? Does this feel like I'm using my time well? Um, when when a when a child feels like they are wasting their time, I I think that's it's it's much worse than when a, a grown up you know feels yeah, like they're wasting I mean, I think time. It's easy for is us. The worst thing you can do, and and one thing to remember is. Kids are learning all the time. They're not always learning what we want them to learn. Maybe they're learning that the world is boring. Maybe they're learning that grown-ups are liars. Maybe they're learning that hypocrisy is the name of the game. Right. They're learning a lot of things, but they're learning all the time. What we want them to learn and what you're expressing about your own kids is this desire that they learn to keep on learning, to keep being curious, to keep engaging the world because they have agency, mm -hmm. because they can change the world. That's what I love about watching little kids learn, whether it's a one and a half year old getting up on her hind legs and beginning to walk. That's amazing, mm -hmm. it's an amazing. And thing. yeah, and, and another aspect of that is watching them learn how to use tools. Right. So they, they're exploring their environment, they're figuring out that I can push this little box over here and now I can reach things in different places. It's and you extend that to you know the right. larger world outside. Right. Uh, and they can understand how to, to, to you know use the tools that they have available to them, like uh, the internet, right? Like right. learning, like I'm, I'm a person who likes to learn things from YouTube. Like if, if, there, if something breaks in the house, I'm gonna go on YouTube and figure out how to fix it. And so kids have access to that and I want them to be able to cultivate it's amazing. that. You know, when I talk preschool, you're reminding me that I always set up an environment where it was not only always changing, but that it foregrounded curiosity and discovery and using your own, um, your own body your own world to kind of make sense so I always put just one example I had blocks I had a reading area I had a cooking area but I always put red blue and yellow paint at the easels and what that meant was I mean can you think why did I use red yellow blue uh, primary colors I knew you could say that it's primary colors of course but so here's what would happen every week some kid would come to me and say Bill look, red and blue make purple. And I could have said, weren't you paying attention when I gave you the primary and secondary colors yeah, lecture? Yeah. Or I could say, oh my gosh, what else? What else can you find? Then they start to find orange and green. Mm -hmm. But the point of that is working in the environment, having the agency to change the environment, they discover for themselves. And the deepest discovery is I can make sense of the world. Think about I that. have agency. That's awesome. That's that's radical education, right? To me, you that's broke the most radical thing. To to its most simplest form, right? And allowed them to experiment to create greater possibilities. That yeah. is You know, when I moved radical. to Chicago years ago, I discovered that you had to know your primary colors to get into kindergarten. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, wow. you should kindergarten should be a point of exploration. I can even take it back further. The birth of my oldest son, 43 years ago, mm -hmm. you know, it was a home delivery. It was a complicated, long-term labor. When he was finally born, he was five minutes old. The midwife wrapped him in, swaddled him up, and put him on his mother's breast, and he began nursing. Five minutes old, and I could see that he was saying to his mother, not this way, that way. That's mm -hmm. not enough, that's too much. Mm -hmm. Within five minutes, he knew things that he could learn 
to be in dialogue around. Mm -hmm. If he knows that at five minutes, what does he know at five years? What does he know at 15? It's so exponential in the first, that those first few years. Absolutely, like you're watching every day. Yeah, the it's, miracle's it's, happening it's, for it's you outrageous. every day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And what you want is to keep that miracle going, you know, and, and one of the things you learn, and this is another disappointment I have with most organized schooling, is that education, learning, like love, is generative. The more you have, the mm. more you can give away. The mm. more you give away, the more you have. And it's not something that's, right. that's limited. You know, too often we act as if learning is a filling up an empty bucket. But actually learning is lighting a fire and letting it go. And you, lucky you, are witnessing it every day with your little kids. Absolutely, yeah. It's an awesome responsibility too, but I'm, I'm loving it. Good work, man. <laughs> It's time for our guest speaker series, activists, authors, and artists after hours, where we talk to folks who can help us think more clearly about this political moment, about where we are on the clock of the universe, and about what is to be done or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our most radical imaginations, and ask ourselves how we can make a difference in this moment going forward. It's a wonderful opportunity for me and for all of us to have Kevin Kumashiro joining us in this conversation under the tree. He's the author of several essential texts in education, notably Against Common Sense and The Seduction of Common Sense. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention a book we wrote together called Teaching Toward Democracy with three other close comrades and friends. But he's a dazzlingly clear thinker, a strategist, a tactician when it comes to thinking about schools, what they could be, and imagining how to build a movement to bring those utopian schools into being. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. It's so great to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Bill. You bet. Um, I want to begin by asking you a question that my colleagues, comrades at Ergo ask when they have guests, and that is, um, how's the world treating you? Ah, <laughs> this, yeah, what a time. I mean, I feel like, you know, the good is that the world seems to be telling us to pause. Um, it's, a, it's a pause button, and pauses can be a, a moment to grieve, and it can be a moment to um, mourn, and it can also be a moment to strategize and to imagine and to create. Um, so we're both healing and we're, I think, energizing. And I feel like I'm trying to be as intentional as, as, I, as I can about taking that invitation or that demand from the world to do that. Because I also feel like this is also a time when, you know, the world seems to be making so visceral and, you know, almost impalatable <laughs> the injustices in the world. It's just confronting it so front and center in our faces and that I feel like can be um, arresting it can stop me and um, it can depress and it can infuriate um, and so I'm trying to you know be able to sit with all of the injustices and try to listen to what I think I'm being called to do in this moment. Does meditation help with that? 
Yeah, I feel like meditation has become a, a bigger and bigger part of my routine, daily routine. And I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm offering this webinar. I've been offering webinars throughout the summer as part of my contribution to the world in this moment. And um, one of my latest was trying to share some meditation techniques. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe that's something I might do a little bit more often, just to kind of, in the midst of all the political education, also remind ourselves that we must do so much more to take care of ourselves, otherwise we're all just going to burn out. Right. That's what I was going to ask you, the follow-up question you more or less answered, but I'll ask it anyway, and that is, how are you treating the world? So how, are, how is the world treating you? How are you treating the world? Another word. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I, I feel like sometimes we, we who write and think a lot about education and, and justice and democracy um, get so wrapped up in what's my next contribution. Um, rather than thinking about, you know, we're always trying to improve and act. And I think that's how we burn out without thinking that we're also, our contribution is also about receiving and it's about connecting um, and it's about being grounded in this, in this world. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm always doing enough of that, but, <laughs> but that's definitely how I want to be contributing is that I want to contribute um, as a leader and activist and scholar and educator. And I also want to contribute as a human um, who's, you know, whose presence as just a person, as this living being on the world, um, is needed by others as much as the education, pedagogical, activist work that we do. Interesting. And you, you use the word common sense. You resist common sense in, in all of your writing, and you try to reframe issues. But, you know, most people listening would say, well, common sense. It's just common sense that common sense makes sense. Say a word about the problem of common sense and why it is you find yourself constantly trying to disrupt it or overturn it. What's, what's so bad about common sense? Yeah, I've been obsessed about this notion of what is common sense and is it a good or bad thing or both or neither um, for like 20 years. And, um, and I think that, you know, it began really when I was looking more at curriculum and teaching and teacher preparation. And I was really um, even drawing on my own experiences as both a teacher and then as a you know, field supervisor and a teacher educator, listening to uh, folks in the classroom talk about you know, how all these great theories we're learning aren't really practical and how you really learn to teach by going into the classroom and doing. And it made me wonder, what do we rely on when we think that experience is going to teach us everything? Um, because experience and practice is incredibly important, but experience sometimes means we rely on how things have been done or what kind of conventional wisdom tell us things, how things should be done. And so for me, Grappling with common sense is really grappling with these stories and narratives we're, we're just swimming in that make us think that this is how things have always been or how things always should be. Um, and for me, you know, one thing I like to remind myself is that I think education really is about not um, sort of teaching us to fit into those stories. Um, education really should be about questioning those stories themselves. Um, so it's not about how do we succeed in the world as it is? Education to me is about how do we imagine that the world could be different? And if you feel so moved to then build your capacity to build that world, to move towards that world. And so I, I think that questioning common sense is like a, has become a bigger and bigger part of how I think about the curriculum in schools. And then in the past 10 years, that attention shifted more towards my work on kind of 
uh, looking at policy and school reform and larger reform movements, so-called reform movements, where I feel like, again, we're seeing the same thing, where if you can make things sound commonsensical, that seems to be what everyone wants to buy into. So common sense seems to drive not just how we navigate the world and how we think about teaching and learning, but it, it drives the policies that shape how the very enterprise of education. And so I think when we think about reform, that's also something we should be doing is ask ourselves, well, what are the stories that we all seem to be buying into, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, whatever, um, and how is that getting in the way of us seeing that we're, we're perhaps asking the wrong uh, question? Give us an example of that, of the stories we tell ourselves that are just so foundational that you don't, you seem like a nut to even question them. Give us a, an example or two. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the really big examples um, is that test scores tell us everything we need to know. Um, it should drive admissions decisions for college. It should drive teacher evaluation. It should drive whether, what the, you know, how, whether you complete school or how you're graded or things like that. And it reminds me of my time in Chicago with you when we were both at the University of Illinois Chicago. We were working on this joint brief that you know a hundred scholars had signed on to throughout the city that talked about teacher evaluation. And at the time, the state was debating you know how much should test scores count, student test scores count for teacher evaluation, and should it be like twenty percent? Should it be forty-five percent? And so we did this brief that basically said you know the science doesn't back up using test scores, um, including gains in test scores, to evaluate teachers. There's so much that goes into test scores, tell us test scores tell us only so much, and they certainly were never designed to evaluate teachers. Um, and so we give this whole presentation to like, the, it's like, I don't know, half a dozen reporters in the room, and the very first question that gets asked is, so what percentage do you think it should count for? Like as if they didn't hear anything that we were just making the argument about. Um, so, and I, and I bring this example up just because I feel like not only is it hard for the general public to get outside of this thinking that test scores tell us everything we need to know, but I, I look at even whether you're a Democrat or Republican, right? The, it was the Obama-Duncan administration, a Democratic administration that moved very kind of full force on using test scores to evaluate teachers, using test scores to determine whether schools should be closed or turned around or whatever. Um, and I feel like that's just one of the many stories that often goes, we're, we're debating the wrong question. We're still all buying into this notion. You know, another one would be that competition and marketizing a, a system is going to drive improvement. It's like grocery stores in a neighborhood. Like we assume that the competition between them will make them work harder, try, be more innovative, be smarter, and that the best will succeed. And I think we've, we have decades of research from around the world that tell us that making schools compete can actually exacerbate um, and have exacerbated inequities. So yeah, how do we challenge these commonsensical stories? And I think our job as scholars is not just to highlight and amplify that these stories are problematic, but to say, well, actually, there are some other stories, there are some other frameworks that we could draw on that would be far more effective at improving schools. So, for example, what are those other frameworks? Or, again, a couple of examples. Yeah, I mean, I think the, just going on this market example, so the common frame that we're trying to push against is not just that competition is going to fuel improvement, but that education itself is like a commodity in a marketplace. And so if you, you kind of 
have the resources, then you should have the ability to shop around and get something better. Um, and, and I think there are some great ways of rethinking that, such as to say, well, what if we were to say education is a fundamental human right or really a core public good? Um, then our question wouldn't be, how do we support every student in competing for the best school? or buying the best education you can get, the, the question really is now, how do we prepare a system so that every student can walk to their neighborhood public school and get the very, every school is offering the very best that our nation has to offer. I mean, I think that's a very big reframing that, you know, that needs to happen. And, and even going back to teacher evaluation, like, um, so we, we're, we're buying into the story that the way you evaluate teachers is you look at how students perform. And so when the Obama-Duncan administration came along and said, all right, so here's how we're going to evaluate teachers. We're going to look at whether they can raise test scores. <laughs> and then here's how we're going to evaluate the programs that prepared those teachers. We're going to um, require them to trace their graduates for three years and show whether or not test scores went up. And if they did, that means the teacher was effective. And if that happens, then that means the program that prepared them was effective. Right? It's this whole value-added kind of m modeling um, that we, we think is going to tell us everything. But what, I, what was interesting was that when that came out, the response by some teacher educators were to say, was to say, well, test scores don't tell us everything about student learning. We need portfolio assessments that tell us a much more complex picture. And so if we can look at portfolio assessments of student learning, we'll then know whether a teacher was effective and then we'll, we'll then know whether the program that prepared them was effective. And I think I and others were saying at the time that actually that's, that's still buying into the story that the way you evaluate anything, a teacher or a program, is by individual output. But really, let's go the opposite direction. Let's not try to erase all other things that help to teach and look only at the value added of the teacher. Let's actually insist that what requ is required for students to learn is an entire system. It's like the whole, it takes a village mentality. And if we buy into the story, this other story, that actually the only thing that can help us understand the learning of, and growth and success of a child is that the system is working well, then the question should be, how does that teacher contribute to that larger system of teaching children? Or how does that teacher prep program contribute to that larger system? It's going the exact opposite. It's not trying to erase everything that is helping to learn and only look at the value added of the teacher. It's actually looking at how well does the teacher or the program contribute to the larger system. So that to me is again a kind of a turning the story on its head and saying that's you're going the wrong direction with how you're trying to understand the problem. But so in a way, you're saying that the dogma, the orthodoxy, is so entrenched that liberals and conservatives, even radicals and reactionaries, kind of can't get out of that frame. The frame itself is so airtight. It's such an orthodoxy that breaking out of it, it and in a sense, if you stay within that frame, you're contributing to inequity and oppression, right? I mean, in other words, common sense doesn't just undermine your imagination. It actually contributes to the problem, even as you think you're solving. Is that, am I onto it? Is that about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm just so resonating, yeah, with what you're saying, because I feel like, you know, a great example is um, like 20 years ago, everyone was talking about, and still now, closing the achievement gap. And the unions are talking about this, and the civil rights groups are talking about this, and so are the kind of more mainstream groups like National Governors Association and National School Boards Association. So what's interesting is to think about how 
A, the achievement gap, is a very narrow way of understanding racial disparities in education. But also, B, when did we first start talking about education disparities in terms of differences in test scores, this kind of tip of a much larger iceberg of racial disparities. And I think many of us would argue that this, this very narrow focus, this narrow way of thinking about racial disparities along the lines of achievement gaps really originates in the 80s with the Reagan administration sort of repositioning itself as, of where conservatives fit in the larger conversations around education. It's like saying, we too care about racial disparities, but let's talk about it in terms of this, which, all, which is all about blame Naming individual students and teachers, and it's all about sort of um, um, shifting our gaze away from the systemic problems that the civil rights movement was trying to raise around funding inequities, around segregation, around you know who's in the prof the profession and the teaching profession, and so on. Um, so this shift from looking at the system to blaming individuals, I think, characterizes so much of what we're seeing in the past few decades about how we're differently and narrowly defining. Um, the problem, and then yeah, and then once we're stuck in those stories, um, it's hard to then reshift and say, well, actually, maybe that's not the right framing. Maybe we need to uh, look at systems or, or look at something much bigger. I mean, but but in the '80s, say starting with the Reagan Revolution, and kind of the tension that exists in all societies between me and we, between the individual and the and the collective. I mean, I think that. And it sounds like you're saying that we took a huge lurch towards individualism, kind of weaponizing individualism as the only frame that made sense. And so when you when they did that, when that kind of occurred in our society, did the liberals or the civil rights groups or the educators find a way to resist or did they get sucked into that frame and and kind of kind of fool around on the edges instead of challenging the frame itself? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's probably that the, the answer is probably yes and no, that some were resisting and reframing and some were really buying into it. Um, but, you know, one thing that I was really fascinated by in the last half a year when I was trying to look historically at what's happening in education, um, I was amazed. I was fascinated to look at several moments in history where, um, you know, the what we might call this broader left of the liberals and progressives and civil rights groups and all of that unions um, where uh, certain things um, globally or nationally certain factors certain events caused the left to retreat and to pull back from a much broader vision that they had been pushing for to come up with something that might be more manageable or palatable to the mainstream. Um, and in a lot of these instances, um, you know, red baiting, communist baiting, Cold War um, had a lot to do with that. And so we look at sort of what was happening in the 1940s around civil rights groups retreating from a human rights agenda to put forward a civil rights agenda. And we see the same thing in the 1970s with like the Trilateral Commission and sort of where liberals were sort of positioning themselves in terms of of the global uprisings that we saw happening um, by marginalized populations in the 60s. Um, we also saw it in the late 80s, early 90s with the fall of communism and what was happening with, you know, um, what we might call the far left in, in that moment when everyone's sort of concerned about being um, associated with a, a kind of a political ideology that, that we're seeing as faltering. Um, and we see it right now again with like the attacks on the Bernie Sanders campaign and people calling folks like, Sanders too communist or too socialist and too aligned with the Chinese or the Russians. I mean, you know, whatever. And I feel like this is um, 
those moments in history where we see this retreat really um, out of because of the kind of um, socialist baiting, communist baiting that's happening. I feel like these are interesting moments to think about um, what could have you know the movements look like had a much more kind of progressive lefty agenda um, been insisted on rather than something that was compromised, which maybe we compromised because we felt that that was more politically efficient. Um, but as some scholars would argue, did we ever return to the broader vision that we had initially put forward? It's sort of like Carol Anderson in his, her book, Eyes Off the Prize, is, is one of the things that I, I find very helpful. Like She's making this argument that in the 40s and 50s, as the civil rights group retreated from this larger human rights agenda, um, because the civil rights agenda was seen as perhaps more um, efficient, I mean, more palatable, and therefore more likely to get put into law, and it was. Um, but her argument is that in the ensuing decades, did we return to what we had originally envisioned? Did we keep? Did we? Did, did we keep our eyes on the prize, or did we lose sight? And her her argument is, of course, that we we didn't actually return to the larger vision, and that we need to. And 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 given this political moment, a moment as you described in the beginning of dread and fear and, and uh, kind of horrors all around, but also the, the decline of imperialism, a social movement, uh, the, the latest iteration of the Black Freedom Movement rising in a way that is, uh, was unexpected and I think you know, supersedes anything we could have imagined a mere year or two ago. So given this political moment, and given that we're talking in this, uh, in this podcast about freedom, how, how do you, what is the larger vision that you have for schools that can can create the conditions where free people with with minds of their own are able to actually work collectively to take control of their lives what well, how do you how do you t think about or talk about that vision yeah well i'm appreciating the reminder your reminder that this is a moment with this kind of historic uprisings um, and the social movements I, I find incredibly exciting from black lives matter to the sunrise movement to you know the movements for kind of medicare for all to protecting the planet protecting water um, because so many of these movements i think are very intentionally intersectional and trying to connect the dots and the green new deal is perhaps one of the best examples of something that's very explicitly trying to say, well, you can't save the planet, you cannot save the planet unless you're also tackling how kind of global capitalism is, you know, benefits off of the policies that ignore the health of the planet and can't do that without just transition in labor and without food justice and so on and so on. So I feel like a, what gives me hope in this moment are these very intersectional social movements. And then to answer your question about what then, what then does that mean for thinking about education, I feel like what I would find really exciting or what I find really exciting about some of the amazing work happening right now is when we, is, is when we um, treat or engage in education as a form of movement building. Like education, not as transmission, education, not as just merely meeting standards, and certainly not education as merely job preparation, but education as a form of movement building. So if we think about what makes for a social movement, what I would argue is, well, how do we animate all of those aspects of a social movement in schooling, such as you know, so social movements to me are all about raising political consciousness and kind of reframing the debate. And social movements are all about 
um, engaging the masses and mobilizing the masses in a way that's far more collective and far more in solidarity with many different causes. Movements to me are, they, they don't have, they not, they're, they aren't always intersectional, but they are so much more exciting, I think, when they are. Um, so what would it mean for education to really prioritize these, these aspects around kind of, you know, it's sort of like people saying, in this moment of the coronavirus pandemic, um, how is it possible that even from the Democratic Party, we see so much resistance to Medicare for all, like with the presidential candidates? Um, or how is it in a moment of, um, you know, the planet being destroyed, it's so obvious that the planet is being destroyed, that human existence is at risk. Um, we still have so much resistance to fundamental changes in how we think about planet health and Green New Deal and all of that. Um, I think the same thing with education, like in this moment when it's so obvious that injustice is um, being amplified, it's being um, authorized by the White House and things like that. It's so obvious that the planet is being destroyed. It's so obvious that we're all, we're so incapable of dealing with a health pandemic. Um, how is it that education is not repositioning itself to be a major intervention in these issues? This is something that I, I feel like I talk about a lot in some of my in a lot of my webinars, presentations, meetings over the summer is this is a moment for us to demand that education needs to be far more relevant and needs to see itself as making an intervention in this political global moment. Um, and so that's, I think, what gets me excited about where education uh, could be going. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we've talked about this, you and I before, but I mean, the pandemic illuminates a lot of the catastrophes and a lot of the contradictions, a lot of the underlying conditions not only white supremacy and environmental destruction, but take within schools, within public education. A lot of things that were unthinkable a year ago are suddenly happening. So colleges are admitting kids to campuses without SAT scores. That was unthinkable a year ago. Couldn't happen. It was demanding the impossible. And now suddenly it's possible. What are some of those other things that's, that are illuminated in this lockdown, in this pandemic, and combined with things like the Green New Deal, like the Movement for Black Lives that offer a program that's comprehensive and that says we could do it this way. What are some, name some of the other issues that are illuminated for you in this moment? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll name a couple. Um, one thing I'm thinking about is, is curriculum. And I, I'm reminded of a friend of mine, a former student of mine who, um, blogged after we were in a conversation and was saying how exciting would it be if you know she's a college professor how exciting would it be if you could form these curriculum clusters these these course groupings that students can take um, that are all in some ways exploring some some aspect of this moment like what if you had a curriculum cluster on the pandemic and so you had an education class and an anthro class and a biology class and a whatever political science class and a literature class that at some point in the semester is grappling with the notion of a pandemic I mean I feel like there's so many ways to imagine curriculum being done differently um, I also think about another aspect of schooling I think about is how you know tens of millions of students get fed every day from schools and um, you also have millions and millions of children around the world that are being fed 
through schools. And what happened when we shut down schools? Well, a lot of them, some schools found innovative ways to distribute the food. A lot of schools did not. A lot of countries stopped providing food.、Um, a lot of countries around the world provide what's called cash transfer programs, where they Um, it's almost like an incentive to families to send their children to school by giving them money so that you know, you're not relying on child labor and stuff like that.、Um, well, some of the cash transfer programs also ended.、Um, and and, and it's, it's like, all right, so we don't have schools. So, in some ways, you can, I guess, in some ways, rationalize that you would stop. Feeding and stop providing food. But this is a moment when unemployment is being ramped up, that food scarcity is actually going up as well. How can we actually talk about schools scaling back on these essential services that they provide? Schools also provide safe havens, or at least、um, they monitor、um, child abuse that's happening at home and trauma that's happening with domestic violence. You know, so schools provide mental health services, nutrition, social services. They provide a space for students to interact.、Um, and all of these kind of other services, we, so many of us, I think, would argue, like with the whole movement around community schools, this is how we need to be thinking about schools. That schools are, are not just this academic transmission place, they actually could be thought of as a hub. Of community capacity building and child capacity building and, and wellness.、Um, and I, I find that to be an incredibly exciting way to think about A, what the crisis has highlighted in terms of all that schools do provide beyond the three R's, for example. And, and then it raises the question well, what if we were to really beef up the capacity of schools to do that, to do that for every child consistently?、Um, I think that's an exciting vision. It is. And these kind of things that you're describing that schools do, I would just put a caveat on that do or should do. Because in Chicago, for example, we do not have enough counselors, enough nurses, enough you know, mental health facilities. But that's what they're charged with doing. And that's certainly what we've had two major teacher strikes about and many other social upheavals. But I think that's a really helpful frame. And, and what's helpful to me about it is that. You know, we see now, and this is the nature of a crisis like the crisis, the multiple crises we're facing. We see, for example, the National Review and other organizations, right wing organizations, calling for an end to government schooling, what they call government schools. We should end government schools. We have a Secretary of Education who wants religious schools and private education, but no so called government schools. And again, it's that kind of Undermining of anything that could be called the public, anything that could be called the collective or the community, in the interest of the most narrow right wing. So, when you put forward a vision that has to do with mental health and,、uh, and physical health and nutrition and environmental wisdom and so on, you're, running, you're, you're asking us to do something that goes beyond what we have, not just. Not just fighting for what we have. You're saying this could be a way of thinking. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yeah, yeah.、Um, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Like, we, we're in this moment when reformer, so called reformers and federal leaders are all pushing us in, a, in one direction, which is to dismantle the public sector. And it's in education, funneling hundreds of millions of dollars just within the Care package, actually more than billions of dollars, I think,、um, to private sectors or charter schools or religious schools.、Um, it's happening in、so、privatization with outsourcing of like testing needs and all. Of, so, in so many ways, outsourcing and privatization is happening. It's dismantling the public sector and it happens in healthcare and all of these other things. So, absolutely, I think 
our job is not just to say let's keep things as they are our job is to say let's go in 180 like degrees opposite direction and insist that this needs this schools we we sort of claim that this is about public education schools have failed to actually provide what is needed to really build democracy and our job isn't to retreat on that vision our job is to actually double down and say we need to be doing even more to make schools into like the cornerstone of democracy and that requires that it be fundamentally a public good for everyone um, and so let's radically let's like more broadly more creatively more boldly imagine like what does that mean if it's really a public good um, and I, I think yeah I think this is a huge ideological battle it's not simply a policy one but it's it's why I think kind of movement building and consciousness raising is so important because I think the masses need to sort of reframe that story for ourselves as well to say well actually yeah there is a whole different way that we should be talking about what it means for education to be a public good and let's let's engage in that conversation and push towards that vision yeah, and, and the way you talked about curriculum a minute ago, and you had the example of, of studying the, the, the pandemic, I think that's another area where we could get creative and unleash our radical imagination so that, I mean, all the talk from the Arne Duncans and the Margaret Spellings and the kind of conservative liberal educational establishment is about what amount of learning is being lost day by day or month by month. But learning isn't like that. So the question is, what are you learning and how could we have learning that's relevant, tied to the ground, tied to the political moment, in which the goal is students who are more enlightened and more liberated to think about the world they want to live in. And I think that's a really big project that you and I should engage in. <laughs> I mean, we are, we already are, but, but seriously, thinking about curriculum, not as the stuff that's given out in small packages, but thinking of it as an engagement with the world that asks the fundamental questions. What kind of a world do I want to live in? How do I get there? Where are we coming from? Why, why is there an, a, an environmental crisis? What are the root causes of it? I mean, those are the kind of questions that could power a curriculum for life, right? I mean... And, and we see, and we, you know, this, your notion of kind of curriculum as these kind of discrete small packages of knowledge is so, was so, again, thinking about how the pandemic amplifies, highlights, sheds a light on what's wrong with schools. Um, I, I think when we move towards sheltering in place, shuttering schools and learning at home, um, what we saw for, I think, way too many students was uh, a... a um, a zeroing in on education as merely transmission of con content delivery. And so we're all focusing on this, how do we not fall behind? How do we cover the content we were supposed to cover by June and things like that? And so everything else got erased. We went down to kind of the basics of what are the core elements of the curriculum we want to deliver. And then it's a lot of worksheets and it's a lot of practicing and it's a lot of trying to hope that they get there. And what we lost was all else that schools provide, not just the soft skills that we know are super, the so-called soft skills that we like study habits, conscientiousness, social interaction, motivation, all of these other things that we know are so needed for students to survive, but also the relevance of curriculum to our lives, to the world, to problem solving. So I think that's a perfect example of how, you know, for many people, that's probably what they want to see happen in public schools is this very dumbed down, irrelevant, 
um, not very meaningful or helpful form of education that keeps the masses very, you know, sort of less educated than the elite. Um, it's a way to kind of um, perpetuate this notion that schooling for the masses should be something that's inferior and subs um, sort of inadequate and substandard. Um, and I think, th again, it's why in this moment we should be saying, no, actually, in a moment of a pandemic, we don't double down on some of the most basic fundamental pedestrian aspects of education, we should actually be insisting that this is a moment for schools to step up and to do what they really should be doing um, to make lives better for everyone. You know, it's funny, this, uh, these ideas of curriculum are so, you talk about uh, the dogma of common sense or the orthodoxy of common sense. Curriculum is the stuff you deliver. I, I remember working with a group of teachers around building project curriculum in somewhat the ways you were talking about, about integrating various disciplines and so on. And a second grade teacher reported back the project she'd done with her second graders. And what she'd done is she was required to do a two week section on rocks. And she took the kids down to a nearby park with a little stream running through it to collect rocks. But the whole time they were collecting the rocks, the kids kept looking at the fish. And there's a gold one and there's a brown one. And the teacher reporting out said she threw caution to the wind and did two weeks on fish. And she did fish in history, fish in curriculum, recipes for fish. They had pet fish. They didn't eat the pet fish, but you know, they had the whole thing. And, um, but when she was reporting it out, she said the whole time I was doing the fish, I was feeling guilty about the rocks. And you think about it, second grade, two weeks on rocks, there are people getting PhDs in fish and rocks. And, and the idea that somehow, if I miss this two week unit on rocks, but that's the common sense, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're inducted into thinking when we think about curriculum, right? Yeah. I mean, why is it that schools are about insisting that students learn only what we determined years before that everyone should learn rather than schools as rather than content delivery schools as really sites of knowledge production, schools that are super generative students that are schools that are teaching people to think um, and teaching people to think is about responding to the moment we're in and being curious about the moment we're in. I mean, um, I think you just nailed it around what what are the arts of liberty if you want to create free people? If you, if you suppress intellectual curiosity and highlight the stuff of rocks or fish, you're really undermining a kid's ability to participate as an agent in a free society. And isn't that how education functions, one of the ways that education is so dehumanizing is it teaches us that we are simply receptacles and that we are simply to conform and that the more we sort of absorb what everyone else is telling us to absorb, the more successful we are. It's why I think in so many ways we can think about success in education as a, as a measure of assimilation and conformity rather than as, you know, any indication of our ability to thrive as individuals, as agents of democracy, as, you know, we need to, the, what is the John Lewis thing? We need to be causing good trouble. And you can't do that if you're simply always following the script. Um, and so education needs to be about rattling the script. And I think that's, uh, that's a far more exciting way to think about, you know, what our, what our endeavor is. So you had referenced the Green New Deal before. Have you put pen to paper and tried to create a new deal for public education? <laughs> so your listeners may not know this, but since Bill edits the 
teachers teaching for social justice book series with Teachers College Press. Um, my next book is coming out in that series, and so I've super appreciated talking to Bill about you know what what is the what is an intervention that we might make and. Um, I think the Green New Deal is an interesting example because, you know, the Green New Deal, like trying to think about uh, a whole intersectional set of policies and initiatives that can save the planet is really modeled after um, the New Deal from the 1930s and 40s, or 1930s really. But what's interesting is that, you know, so the the New Deal under Roosevelt was um, both heralded as this very kind of... um, you know, uh, a, a set of policies and initiatives that can really build the economy by looking at a whole bunch of different factors, um, but also neglected to address certain populations, right? People of color weren't really supported, women in some ways. And I think, so our challenge as we look at the Green New Deal and at something like education is how do we look intersectionally, how do we look systemically? Um, and so part of what I do in my forthcoming book called Surrendered, Surrendered is... Um, due out in October, by the way, is, <laughs> is to try to think about, well, what might an education New Deal look like? And I don't actually provide a blueprint. You know, part of my argument is that, A, we want to we follow some of the lead from the New Deal and the Green New Deal, which is to look at systems, which is to look intersectionally, which is to look at sort of social movements. But in looking at social movements, I also feel like the, the policy platform needs to be generated from the masses. And I, so I feel like I can provide what I think of as some parameters, but I really think that our job is to really build up a social movement that, puts, that pushes forward on different initiatives and priorities that will bubble up into a set of um, policies. You know, uh, the book is called Surrendered, and maybe say a word about why that title. Yeah. Surrender, the subtitle is Why Progressives Are Losing the Biggest Battles in Education. And what I look at is um, something that we talked about a few minutes ago, which is throughout the 20th century, there are these key moments in, um, in our nation's history, and actually globally as well, where you saw the larger left, the liberals, progressives, and so on, um, who had been fighting for somewhat of a broader agenda kind of retreat and, and scale back what it is that they're pushing for or in some cases even go underground and so the book is trying to look at a why and when did that happen in history and so I named some moments right in the 40s and the 70s and the 80s but also why, how is that playing out how has that played out in education and, and maybe more importantly how is that still playing out in education and so I, I also look at I conclude the book by looking at some of the current um, battles in education, um, like around affirmative action, like around privatization, like around you know things like that, and try to um, argue or try to uh, maybe lay out where did the commonsensical rhetoric emerge in the last few decades, and how is it that it looks like even the progressives are still stuck in that in those commonsensical stories, um, and how, how have progressives failed, in other words, to reframe the debate, particularly to move, uh, as I was saying earlier, since a lot of the conservative and the neoliberal demand was to ignore systemic problems and place blame on individuals, um, a lot of the lefty responses still remained within how do we fix individuals. So for me, a lot of the reframing is to go back and to say, no, actually, we need to be looking much more at systemic problems and not just how systems are failing, but how we design systems to function in exactly the ways that they're functioning. So, you know, like when we say the achievement gap is a sign that schools are failing, that actually in some ways is a sign that schools are succeeding, that they're doing exactly what they're set up to do. 
which is to sort and differentiate and to disenfranchise. So in some ways, schools are not a broken system. In some ways, they're kind of functioning the way they are. And, and yet we want to dive into the reality that educational institutions are also historically sites of ideological struggle. They're where revolutions often be, take birth. And so it's not that schools are these, you know, seamless, um, whatever the words we might want to use as uh, institutions that function unproblematically and in a unitary way always. No, actually schools are filled with all these contradictions and our job is to really surface them and to dive into them in ways that um, help us move more productively towards justice. Kevin Kumashiro, I'm so glad you were able to come with us under the tree. I, I don't know anyone who so clearly dives into the contradictions and sorts them out as uh, you move your way out. I, you may remember that I nominated you for Secretary of Education um, <laughs> several years ago. Um, that was the same time I nominated Rashid Khalidi for Secretary of State and Bernadine Dorn for uh, Attorney General. Um, so I'm gonna nominate you again uh, once we turn the fascist government out and, uh, and, uh, and we must, we must have a united front against fascism and some space opens up for organizing, I expect your voice to be a leading voice in uh, what is to come. So I appreciate you very much and thank you so much for coming on. I always love talking to you, Bill, and I can't wait to be the Secretary of Education. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. So before we say goodbye for today, I want you to think harder about education. I want to go back to David Stovall in episode three, where he asked the question that I think every educational organizer ought to ask. And that question is, in your wildest dreams, what could or should schools look like? And that's the homework. Write down a few points about what in your mind schools could look like in your wildest dreams. Don't forget to rate and review Under the Tree on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating, a review. It helps us get noticed on all of the algorithms and the podcast apps. Thank you for listening and tell a friend about the show. Big thanks to my comrades from Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and intrepid mentors in this enterprise. And to my workmate in arms, Malik Ali, engineer, recordist, mixer, musicologist, caregiver, and philosopher in residence. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morella. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tan. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and justice on my mind. Until next time.